Do you all have a favorite comfort food? That was a yes. That was a quick affirmative over here. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, comfort foods are like particular dishes or foods that, that make you feel uh, satisfied or soothed even in some way. Maybe it's because a particular dish is like really nostalgic for you. Like if your mom used to make meatballs, uh, maybe you are just really drawn to meatballs. There's just something about it that makes you feel warm inside. <laughs> or uh, if, if your grandma made grilled cheese sandwiches and she put Miracle Whip on the inside next to the American cheese, which is, don't knock it, <laughs> the proper way to do it. Uh, once you have any other sort of grilled cheese sandwich, it's like, well, it's not quite like grandma made it. Even, even if it's good, even if it's fancy, it doesn't quite hit the spot the same. Particularly during times of emotional distress, food can provide a deep sense of satisfaction. Now, emotional eating is a problem when it's used in excess or if you're using it in a way to dull your emotions so that you don't need to deal with them. But certain foods can provide comfort uh, in a healthy way, like chicken soup when you're under the weather. Jesus created all things very good. All things were created through him, as John told us in chapter 1. And we've been seeing throughout John's gospel that he is using his material creation, the things which he created to help us understand greater spiritual realities. He used wind with Nicodemus. He used water with that Samaritan woman at the well. Later, he'll use sheep to explain how he is the good shepherd. And in today's passage, he points to bread. Now, he created water to explain how he refreshes and revives the thirsty. Is it possible that he created barley so that he could explain how he brings life and sustains abundantly? John chapter 6 is about bread from beginning to the end, really. The word for bread appears 21 times just in this one chapter. But then again, it's not finally about barley loaves. Uh, ultimately, it's not about bread. It's about how Jesus satisfies a spiritual appetite for eternal life. As we walk through this, we're going to see that Jesus is being contrasted with Moses. Moses was God's servant. He led God's historic people on an exodus from being in bondage to slavery. And Jesus here is being presented as God's servant who leads God's people on a permanent spiritual exodus. And just as God sustained his people with physical life, with that bread that came down from heaven in the form of manna, he sustains the eternal life of those who come to him in faith. So one could say that resting in Jesus is the ultimate comfort food. And we'll walk through this first half of John chapter 6 in four sections. We're going to make three observations about what it's showing us about Jesus, and then we're going to tie them together in application in the fourth point. Here's the plan. First, Jesus' provision is more than sufficient, verses 1 to 15. Second, Jesus secures his disciples' safe journey, verses 16 through 21. Third, Jesus leads his people home to eternal life, 22 to 34. And then fourth, take comfort, 
through faith in the sufficient, secure leadership of Jesus. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, we do uh, just echo the words again that we have been singing this morning. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you help us in our doubt, help us in our unbelief, help us to see who you truly are and to grasp the comfort that you've given to us in your gospel? We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Jesus' provision is more than sufficient. Verses 1 through 15, I'm going to read this into our hearing, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them even to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was much green grass in the place. And so the man sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the only miracle that is presented in all four of the gospels, which gives us some indication uh, at how profound and deep and important an illustration this is. For understanding Christ's salvation, it's an illustration that we can understand from a bunch of different angles and probably still never plumb the depths. It's a straightforward account. The crowds are drawn to Jesus because they've seen the signs, about 5,000 of them, just the men, and they need to eat. And so Jesus tests his disciples to see if they are understanding yet who he is. How are we going to be able to feed all these people? This is the question. And one of the disciples answers, man, I don't know. Uh, We could spend eight months worth of wages, and that wouldn't even be enough for everybody to have even a little bit. Another disciple says, man, I I don't know. There's this kid who's got five loaves and two little fish, but that's that's not going to even put a dent in the needs that we have. Jesus' disciples saw then the overwhelming need, but they did not see how that need would be met. And this is the test that Jesus is drawing them into. So at that point, Jesus takes those five barley loaves, gives thanks for them, and distributes them amongst those who are in the crowd. He does the same for the fish, and everyone, it says, ate their fill. And there was still food left over. 
even after everyone had had their fill. So Jesus's provision was more than sufficient. Like Boaz, whose lavish generosity was so uh, graciously given to Ruth, uh, when she had bread and was given leftovers even, when she was done to take back home. Jesus's provision was more than sufficient. And so the crowd sees this sign and they believe that he is the prophet that Moses told Israel to anticipate in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. On its surface, it's an amazing act of provision, just physically, materially speaking. But we have learned by reading through John, haven't we? That every sign is meant to be pointing to something else. Every sign signifies something else. What is the significance of this sign? Track with me for a minute. It's important to remember who Jesus is interacting with here, the Jews, God's historic people. And so to, to really draw out the meaning of what's happening here, we need to bring in a couple of things that we've already covered in John's gospel. In fact, even at the end of John chapter 5 that we looked at last week, it said this, Jesus said, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And we noted too earlier in the first chapter of John's gospel that he said that the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, just to be clear, Moses is great. Uh, He spoke to God. He was a a friend of God. He was a servant of God, which is like the highest title that God could give to any human. And we know, too, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. But Moses couldn't finally deliver his people into the promised land. And the law could not deliver life. All it could do was highlight the absence of life. So Moses and his law were each both insufficient in that sense. And so here we are at Passover, our text tells us, with this hungry crowd in the wilderness, drawn to this man who had performed signs, who is now up on a mountain. We have been set up to see by John in this gospel that Jesus is the true and better Moses who leads a true and better exodus. So here's a recurring theme that I hope that you're noticing in John. There are no hopeless problems when Jesus is involved. He wants his disciples to know that the most overwhelming odds, the most unbeatable hardships do not pose a threat to him. His resources are limitless. And ultimately, that's what this sign is pointing to. There is no limit or deficiency in his ability to provide life, eternal life. So that's the first observation about what we're seeing from this passage about Jesus. There is no need that can outmatch Jesus' ability to support and sustain life. We continue. Second, Jesus secures his disciples' safe journey. Verses 16 through 21, I'll start reading for us in verse 16. Read along if you've got your copy there. 
When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So this is the one section in John 6 that doesn't center around bread. So it almost seems out of place. Why is this section here? Well, if we think about this, in relation to Israel's exodus, it becomes clear. In 1986, the water level at the Sea of Galilee in the Middle East had dropped to record lows. And as that water level dropped, they were able to see some things that were at the bottom of this sea. The wreckage of a ship appeared. It was preserved, and now it's in a museum near the Sea of Galilee. They call it the Sea of Galilee Boat. Here's a replica of what that boat would have looked like in its prime. There's no reason to think that this boat is the same boat that Jesus and his disciples would have used, but it would have been big enough to fit 12 to 15 people on it. Uh, This is what the wreckage looks like that they actually discovered uh, before they rebuilt the conception of it. And so this, this dates back to the time of Christ probably similar to the fishing boat that these men were on in the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee still to this day is well known for its rough storms, strong winds, choppy waves. So you can imagine how fearful the disciples must have been on a boat that size, relatively small, in the dark, fighting against the waves, struggling to row to the other side without capsizing, trying to get there without losing their lives. The Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide, and so it says they got three or four miles in. They were about halfway there, and it was then that they saw Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the storm. And their fears only increased at that moment when they saw Jesus walking on the stormy water trampling on the waves of the sea, as it were. That is actually when they got afraid. But he calms their fear. He calms their fear by saying, it is I. We could rightly translate that as I am. Their fear turned into gladness at the presence of the great I am, verse 21 tells us. It's another illustration, not only of Jesus' authority over the created order, just like with that bread, his created authority over the created order, but it's also illustrating to us his identity, once again, as God. Job chapter 9, verse 8 says that God alone has the authority to be able to trample on the waves of the sea, as it were. In Psalm 77, the psalmist Asaph is recounting to the Lord a time of serious discomfort and trial. His soul is refusing to be comforted. And so he brings his heart out to God and then he remembers God's past redemptive faithfulness to his people and he finds great comfort in remembering what God did at the Exodus. This is what he says starting in verse 16, Psalm 77. When the waters saw you, O God, 
When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is an allusion clearly to the Exodus when God opened up the Red Sea and guided his people through the water. So do you see what this shows us about Jesus? Hunger in the wilderness? Well, that's no match for Christ. A raging sea that would threaten his people's destruction? Well, this is no match for Christ. Even here in the middle of the sea, in the middle of their storm, in the middle of their fear, Jesus comes aboard And please notice what the text says. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. They were glad that he came aboard, and he brought them to their desired haven. Jesus secures his disciples' safe journey. So these two miracles are are really setting the stage for what follows in the rest of the chapter. Third. Jesus leads his people home to eternal life. I'm going to read verses 22 to 24. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only about one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Uh, Just even from those verses that we've just read, you can sense the frantic energy of these people who have seen the sign and now are chasing after Jesus. They're trying to find him again here on this next day and he can't be found. Now these are the same people who are following him, chapter six says at the beginning, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So like bloodhounds, they are tracking him even across the sea in order to see some more signs. What else can this cat do? Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. 
Because the next day, the boats from Tiberias uh, on the southwest shore of the sea have been uh, picking up a few of those who had seen him multiplying the food, and they've brought him over to Capernaum on the northwest side. This is a little bit confusing uh, because there are people who have already seen him do a sign involving bread, and yet it seems like when he's talking to this crowd, there are people who are asking to see a sign involving bread. And so I think we can assume that there are people from Tiberias who had seen that, who had come up now to Capernaum, and there are other people also in Capernaum already who had not seen it yet. Maybe they've heard word, but they've not seen him do this sign, and so they would now like to see it for themselves. And so it seems Jesus is speaking to a mixed crowd here. He begins to teach, and he explains what the multiplication of the bread was all about. Here's the point. There are two breads here. There is one physical bread, and then there is one symbolic bread. The physical bread that he provided the day before was out of an act of compassion. Uh, He had seen these people who were drawn to him without food. He saw the need, and he met the need out of genuine compassion. And now when they've come to him again, because he is so compassionate, He wants them to see that they have a greater need that must be met. A greater need, maybe even that they don't fully understand themselves. The bread that he gave yesterday was temporary. It was a great gift, not to be understated, and it sustained their lives for that day. But the bread that he wants to offer them now, he wants them to understand, would be permanent, that it would endure to eternal life. And so the crowd asks in response, what must we do to be working the works of God, literally is how it translates. In other words, how can we have this eternal life that you're talking about? Surely there is something that we can do, even with God's help. Jesus responds, this is the work. This is the work. Believe in him whom God has sent. The work is believe in me, essentially, Jesus says. That is how you eat the bread that leads to eternal life. Believe in the Son. So I think they're tracking. Okay, well, how can we have confidence that you are the one whom God has sent? How do we know that he has set his seal on you? Can you give us a sign to show us? Maybe some of these people hadn't seen this yet. And in verse 31, they allude back to Moses and to the Exodus. You see this in verse 31? Our fathers... Uh, our, our Jewish ancestors ate bread in the wilderness. And then they quote the Old Testament scriptures to Jesus. It says, he provided bread from heaven for his people to eat. And so during the wilderness wandering, during the time of the Exodus, God provided food for them in the form of manna. Manna. Uh, scripture says that when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And so it was this grain that they could turn into bread, make cakes out of. It was a bread that came down from heaven. This is how they were talking about this manna. And so, okay, so if you, what you have just told us is that you're a prophet. If you're a prophet like Moses, you should be able to do what Moses did. But Jesus helpfully reminds them that it was not Moses who gave you that bread. It was God. And God now provides to you the true bread from heaven. The bread God provided through Moses was only a shadow 
And God now is providing the substance. He says, I have come from heaven to give life to the world. And bless their hearts, they still misunderstood. Sir, we will take an order of your never-ending breadsticks, please. This is the recurring problem that we see throughout John's gospel, isn't it? People misunderstand. Some people might come for the bread, and then they might turn away when he redirects their desires. We'll read next week at the end of chapter 6 that some are turned away because he has hard words that they can't stomach. Here's the thing. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. If you delight in something else, he will kindly but firmly redirect your desires to where they ought to be pointing. Maybe you go to church so that your kids can be exposed to good moral teaching. Maybe you come to church because you want to be around a whole bunch of people who are like-minded. Maybe you come to church because you need a shot of encouragement or self-esteem to make it through the week. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. Maybe you've been coming to church and you don't even know why. Let Jesus suggest to you that there is a gnawing hunger in your soul, a hunger that you might try to distract yourself from, but it is a hunger only faith in God and his Christ can ultimately satisfy. What if the needs that you are feeling, those things that are drawing you to his church, are actually simply signs pointing to a deeper need underneath it that you might not yet feel, that you might not yet understand? I love bread making. Personally, I like to make bread. Uh, I find it almost magical. You take these ingredients that look nothing like bread and you mix them together, very simple ingredients, toss them in the oven, and all of a sudden out pops this bread, which is totally different from what you put in. It is almost as if it is magical. And I, I find it fascinating. I will watch videos about making bread. I will read books about making bread. I will research the, the provenance of the French baguette. Uh, I will try to change recipes of pizza dough to try to make it a little bit better. Every time I want to lean into bread, I, I end up uh, usually it's actually just going to buy it to, at the store because uh, it's easier that way. But I love, I love the concept of making bread for myself. In the final analysis, it doesn't matter what I do with this bread. If I try to figure out uh, the gluten content or if I read the nutrition label, it makes no difference unless I actually eat the bread. There's a lot that you can do with bread that does not actually give you the benefit that bread was intended to give you. Thinking about believing in Jesus is of no use to you. Researching the history of the Christian church will be of no use to you. Finally figuring out the order of salvation will be of no use to you unless you actually, finally, believe. Take and eat. Lean into Christ and let him lead you home to eternal life. We've seen 
John is showing us that Jesus is the true and better Moses, leading a true and better Exodus. And he has been sent by God. He has been certified by God the Father, sealed by the Father to redeem his people out of death into life everlasting. We have seen that his provision is more than sufficient. We have seen that his disciples' journey has been secured by him alone. And we have seen that he leads his people home to eternal life, which will bring us to the conclusion for take comfort through faith in the sufficient, secure leadership of Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How can we, in the final analysis, know that we can entrust our souls to Jesus? How do we know that if we follow him, he will actually finally give us that satisfaction that has been gnawing at our soul? How do we know that he will give us the comfort that we need in the final analysis? Well, listen again to Jesus in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It is God's absolute, unchanging, stable, certain will to give to the Son a people to redeem. That will happen, and he will lose nothing of all that God the Father has given to him. Jesus' mission will not fail. It stands on the unshakable will of the triune God. And we're going to see later in this chapter that he, he knows his people, not conceptually, but even by identity, he knows those who are his and they hear his voice. If we're reading John 6, this ought to land, depending on your response to Jesus, either is very concerning or very comforting. If you look to Jesus and you do not see that he would satisfy your needs, you should pray and ask that your spiritual appetite would be redirected to that which will give you eternal life. But Christians, you should find this very comforting. That in the final analysis, he will hold you fast. As you are coming to the heavenly city, you will face many dangers and, and toil and snares, but he will hold you fast. Your entrance into the heavenly promised land will be because you have simply followed Jesus in. Your work to do is to believe. 
And so if you think that Jesus doesn't have enough grace for you, can I just encourage you to look at that leftover bread from earlier in this chapter? His resources cannot be tapped out. If you think that the path is too dangerous to you, can I encourage you to look to the sovereign presence that calms all fear of his disciples on the sea? Nothing will keep you from your desired haven. And if you wonder if he's able, look to the cross and look to the empty tomb. He didn't die and rise again to give you a jump start in life. He ever lives to bring you all the way home. The Father gives some to the Son, our text tells us. Why? What is the basis of that gift from the Father to the Son? Scripture simply, simply tells us that it is simply the goodness of the divine will. It's not because he looked at you and figured that you've got enough bread and fish to make it on the journey. It wasn't because you offered to do the works of God to earn it. It is in the final analysis because it is the Father's will. God knows that you don't have the resources to make the journey. Can I encourage you that God knows your burden? He knows your sins. He knows your troubles. And yet he calls you. Your great need does not keep him from calling you, and it should not, friends, keep you from coming. He has never rejected a burdened soul who comes to him in faith. He never has. He never will. He's not going to start with you. Come to Jesus in faith and find rest for your soul. He is the ultimate comfort food. Take and eat. Believe. Here's our key takeaway. Trust that your reliable Redeemer will bring you all the way home. Trust that your reliable Redeemer will bring you all the way home. Christian, if God from eternity past has shown such care for your soul, how much more should you care for yourself and your own eternal destiny? Do you sense your need of him in an ongoing way? Are your appetites trained where they ought to be trained? What's most important in life? Not simply your felt need, but what's underneath that? As we navigate life's challenges with Christ as our guide, let's remember that we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, whereas the things that are not seen are eternal. Praise be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.